You're listening to the New Life Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. For more info on service times and locations, you can find us at newlifefoursquare.org. In this episode, Pastor Ken Bringus begins our new series, The Final Days of Jesus, with a powerful message on the parable of the bridesmaids and the importance of practicing the power of today. We are now officially in the Lenten season and speeding our way towards Easter, which is a huge celebration here at New Life. Uh, This is the first time we're going to actually tell the neighborhood, at least 5,000 households, what we're doing for Easter in our community. And so we want to get you ready for um, a big resurrection celebration. But um, the Lenten season is always a time that we get to focus in a little bit more on Jesus and his life and his teachings. And so we're going to begin a series called The Final Days of Jesus. And we're going to zoom in on the things that Jesus did, the things that he taught in his final days on, on earth. Uh, how many of you know that when you are in conversation with somebody who is aware that they don't have very much longer to live on this earth, maybe it's someone who's chronically ill and they're on their deathbed, or you know, someone who knows that, you know what, it's just any time now I could go. How many of you know that when they start to say stuff, that they're just not shooting the breeze. They get really purposeful. They get really intentional about their words. Uh, There's a sense of urgency about what they tell you, especially if it's some last words of instruction, right? Listen up. I'm not going to be here much longer. Hear what I have to tell you, right? There's this urgency. There's this focus. There's this intensity to their words. And so when you read the Gospels, and you are moving up closer and closer to the final days of Jesus' life, that final week, Jesus' tone starts to change. When you first catch him in the Gospels, he's, you know, it's like his, uh, he's teaching things that are full of love and grace, and everybody loves what he's saying. And then near the final days, he's, his tone kind of changes. It becomes more serious. It becomes a little more urgent He's willing to let the the weight of the truth, the ugly, difficult truth, out and let you wrestle with it a little bit more. So in today's teaching, we're going to catch Jesus in one of the parables that he tells that the purpose of these parables are to get us thinking about how to be ready for when the kingdom of God comes in fullness. All right? I'm going to give you a little bit more on this in a second. But his, the parable that we're about to look at is to get us ready, is to, to highlight the importance of getting prepared. So tell the person next to you, be prepared. Be prepared. If you were to examine the life of high-performing athletes like high-level athletes in the professional sports world, most of them, if not all of them, would tell you that the secret to their success is not what they actually do at game time. It's not what they, how they actually perform in a match, in a game, right? In a heat, whatever that is, whatever that sport is. They'll tell you that the key to their success 
was not focusing on game time. It was focusing on what they were doing in practice and how well they prepared for game time. They'll probably tell you things that I tell my kids. You can't control whether you win or lose the match. You can't control whether you win or lose the game. So stop trying to control it. But what you can control is how you prepare for the game. You can't control whether you win or lose. But you can control how you prepare to win. Make sense? Oh, of course. Look at these words from the Apostle Paul. He goes, he, he was speaking to the Greco-Roman world, which is, interestingly enough, where the Olympics began. So when he uses these athletic metaphors, he's speaking to his culture. He goes, don't you realize that everyone in a race, or in a race, everyone runs, but only one gets the prize. He goes, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training, but they do it to win a prize that will fade away. We do it. We as Christ followers do it for an eternal prize. And so today, I want to just have you hang your thoughts around this idea that to win the prize in the life of faith, whatever that looks like, and we're going to paint a picture of what Jesus think it's, thinks it looks like today, but to win the prize in the life of faith, don't focus on the prize. Focus on the preparation. Be ready. Be prepared. So today I want, to, I want you to think about preparation for a much larger vision, for a much larger picture. And the picture is what happens when this current world comes to an end. Jesus speaks very intently about the fact that he will come again. And this is what we believe. This is part of the Christian story. That not only did he come once and was born in a stable in Bethlehem, not only did he die and rise from the grave, but he will come again to consummate the kingdom of God on this earth. That's what we believe, folks. Jesus Christ, Savior, Healer, Baptizer with the Holy Spirit, and soon-coming King. We don't talk about the soon-coming King part a whole lot, but today we're going to talk about it. All right? So let's talk about it. Everything that is happening in our world today, the whole cycle of human history, some people think it's just a big cycle. It's just, it's just us repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Let's see if we can get it better next time. But according to Scripture, human history is not just one big cycle. It's linear. It's leading someplace. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that human history is God's story. It's His story. It has a narrative. It's got a plot. It's got a purpose. And one day it's going to end and give way to a fully redeemed, fully resurrected, restored heaven and earth and humanity. And this... If you don't understand this vision, when you read the Gospels and when you read the New Testament, you're going to end up making the wrong conclusion. You're going to end up concluding that what it means to be saved is to just make sure that when you die, you've got, ins you've got heavenly life insurance. 
But that's not all the gospel is about. Jesus paints a bigger picture. God is at work in human history. And when he comes again, he is going to bring human history to its final end, which is actually, interestingly enough, its new beginning in the new heavens and the new earth. And those who have followed him, this side of that reality, will rule and reign with him forever. Okay. So what, Pastor? <laughs> He's coming again. And Jesus in this parable is going to tell us it's important for you to be ready for this. Be ready. And he uses um, an illustration of a wedding. And i, I got to set this up for you before we read this because you won't really get it if we read the passage and you don't understand the culture of the day. So Jesus has just finished this very haunting discourse of what's going to happen in the last days, right? When the world ends, right? He finishes this very haunting discourse. And then right after it, he tells this parable about these bridesmaids. In the passage we're about to read, it calls them virgins, okay? Virgins are basically young girls that are bridesmaids in this particular wedding party. And so let me give you a little bit of the background of this. By the way, we had a young couple this past week get married. And we want to just say congratulations to Arjo and Meg, who are sitting right here in front. <laughs> they celebrated their, um, their, their wedding and their promises to each other last Saturday. Wait, yes, last Saturday. And um, it was the most unique wedding ever. Can I just brag on it a little bit? So I got there a little late, but right in time for them to recite their vows... And, uh, and right, it was an outdoor wedding. And so right when they were about to recite their vows, I kid you not, rain started to fall. It's like, pow, pow, pow. it wasn't just like drizzling. It was like rain. Everyone was like, forget the vows. Let's go inside, you know. <laughs> now, that was great because you know what? That could have been, I'm sure you were a little upset by it, a little bit. But... Um, they did fabulous. We just moved right onto the inside where it was nice and covered, and everyone was bunched up close, kind of like this, like we are. We're all gathered around. They didn't even need a microphone because, frankly, the microphone wasn't working, right? And so it was just like, we were just like that. It was so amazing. And the rain was a sign of blessing, right? When, when does that ever happen, man? So it was so, it was so beautiful. Thank you guys for having us. And I'm going to, a little later, I'm just to just keep you in your seat a little bit here. Um, Meg here had recited her vows to Arjo. They had written their vows for each other. I got to tell you, this is no disrespect to Arjo, but she totally outdid him. <laughs> and I'm going to read a portion of her vows a little later on in this message. In the ancient world, wedding customs and marriage rites were more elaborate than we make them today. In ancient Palestine, if you wanted to get married, you had to, as a husband, you had to secure what was called the dowry. That was a price that you paid. Like, today it would be money. Okay? Back then it was like cows and like livestock and stuff like that. But you paid a price to the family of the bride in order to get that bride. 
And of course, there's reasons for that, right? Because they're losing, back in, day, back in the day, if you lose a child like that to another, to somebody getting married to your daughter or whatever, that, that's one extra hand in the house. That can't help, right? So, so there was a dowry. You paid a price for the bride. And then as the, as the groom, what you did as the groom is you said, okay, I've paid the family the dowry. Now I'm going to go off back to my father's house, and I'm going to prepare the place where me and my new bride are going to live. And so sometimes if the, uh, the groom was from a, uh, a larger, maybe more wealthy family, he'd go back and he'd say, Dad, let's get the room ready for me and my bride. And however long that would take, sometimes the preparation for that took like a year. Right? But he would have a place, a house, a home, a room that was just for him and his new bride to begin life together and start a family. Wouldn't that be cool, like nowadays, if we made that a requirement? Like, hey, before you get married, you got to have a house. <laughs> you got to have this, right? Anyway, back then it was like that. And this is really interesting because it would take up to a year sometimes for the groom to prepare a place for his bride. Then when it was ready, some speculate he would go back to his bride and say these words. Hey, honey, in my father's house, there's a lot of room. If it were not so, I would have told you. I have gone to prepare a place for you. I'm going to bring you back to that place. Those words sound familiar? Mm -hmm. When Jesus talks about his relationship with us, he talks about it as this intimate connection, covenant relationship that can only be likened to a married couple. So after a year of preparation, the groom goes back and says, okay, let's do it. So they get the, the whole wedding party ready. and they. But see, the thing is, the town would have known that there is going to be a party, but they would not have known when. Because they're not sure when the groom is going to be able to get all this stuff together. So once it's all together, the groom would say, okay, we're coming, but you're not going to know exactly when. But here's the key. Everyone in the town would have probably in, been invited to that party. You know why? Because if you got invited to the party, that party lasted for days on end. So it wasn't something you wanted to miss out on, man. And so you would have these uh, bridesmaids. Let's call them bridesmaids. The scripture calls them virgins. Th they were assigned the task of, uh, of lighting the way because sometimes the groom would come at an unknown hour, like in the night. And the bride would come with him. And so they needed uh, torches or lamps. And so these bridesmaids would be in charge of uh, making sure that when the bridegroom and the bride were on their way, they would be like, okay, it's ready. It's time to light the pathway to the wedding feast because the party is about to begin. All right, so you have that context in mind. Now watch what the parable that Jesus tells. He goes, again, whoa, what is that? that come from? Oh, my. I'm so sorry. Probably got... <laughs> That's so weird. Okay. Um, it's actually Matthew 25, verse 1. Okay, let's start, let's start in verse 1. Listen to my, me reading it, and then we'll pick up in verse 6 right here. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps or torches and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, okay? And five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, did not take any oil with them, but the wise virgins, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. 
The bridegroom was a long time coming. That would have been normal. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, okay, now let's pick up in verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were already who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. All right, so here, here's what I want you to see, and I'm going to kind of speed along here. If you were to line up these 10 bridesmaids against the wall, they would all look exactly the same. They would all look like they were ready. They would all be holding their lamps and torches in their hand. They would all be dressed in Vera Wang, right? They would all be like, we're ready for the party. What you wouldn't see is that five of them had oil or fuel in their possession, and the other five had let their fuel dry up. And so you wouldn't be able to tell on the surface who was wise and who was foolish. And this is the theme that Matthew plays on, because this parable is not about believers and unbelievers. This parable is about true believers and false believers. It's about true disciples who say they follow Jesus and false disciples who say they follow Jesus but really don't. Have you ever heard anybody in your history of going to church say something like, man, I don't go to church because all those people are hypocrites? You ever ever heard the argument that, you know what, church, I don't, we, we don't do that because those Christians, are pretty, they're pretty much hypocritical. How many of you have ever felt that way? <laughs> of course, of course. You know what, if you were to ask Matthew, the gospel writer, right, if you were to ask him about that, he'd go, yeah, yeah, that's about right. That's about par for the course. That's the way I see it too. In the church, there's false disciples and there's true disciples, he would say, absolutely, in the church, there are hypocrites. <laughs> and you know, what he would, you know what else he would say? He would say, and none of us have the right to judge who's a hypocrite and who's not. That's what he would say. And so what he does with this parable is just highlight this truth. That, listen, it doesn't matter how long you've been in church or grown up in the faith or not. We all have the tendency to slip into hypocrisy. We all have the tendency to settle for a counterfeit faith. And it can happen often without you even realizing it. This is why he tells the parable. You can't tell whether they're wise or they're foolish just by looking outwardly. But when there's a delay, when there's impatience, when it seems like God is absent and he's not doing anything, 
that's when you begin to see who's wise and who's foolish. Interesting, isn't it? So listen, set yourself at ease. You can't use that excuse anymore. Of course there's hypocrites in the church. And honestly, there have been times when I've been one of them. Of course. That's why he says, don't let yourself slip into this. Make sure your faith is authentic, that it's real. You know, uh, <laughs> if you ever go to like, uh, well, when we went to the Philippines this past summer, there's this place over there called Green Hills. And Green Hills is like what today in our society, <laughs> you guys know, right, would be the swap meet. And in the swap meet, right, in the Philippines it's called Green Hills. It's this massive marketplace, indoor marketplace. Man, I'm telling you, you could buy any name brand that, you, that was on the face of the planet. Sunglasses, clothes, I mean, you name it, man. It's all there, right? Well, we would call it knockoff, right? We'd call it, yeah, that's like, that's like a knockoff brand. I even bought myself some sunglasses, man, Ray-Bans. <laughs> but they're not Ray-Bans, right? But they look like Ray-Bans. They feel like Ray-Bans. But I guarantee you, they're not Ray-Bans. You know why I know? Because I looked up, I said, well, okay, let's see if Ray-Ban actually has this model. Ray-Ban doesn't even have that model. But it's got their, their logo on it. And man, it's, this is great. And anybody looking on the outside would see the logo go, oh, dude, pastor's wearing Ray-Bans. Am I wearing Ray-Bans? No. It's a knockoff. It's the same way. Like, we like knockoffs, right? Because, like, we get the brand, and we get the, uh, the, uh, the image that comes with the brand. But it's not real. Yeah? You know how you know it's not real? Like, in five days, the thing breaks. <laughs> This doesn't block the sun. Come on. It's like, what is... Right? You, you got you to scratch a little deeper to determine whether that thing is authentic because it lasts. It's the same way with faith. Yeah? If your faith is counterfeit, when the trials of life come, when the difficulties surface, when you actually have to go to church and not feel like going to church, that's when you start to see whether your faith is real or not. Come on. So we gotta, we got to be careful because any one of us can slip into this kind of lie. Matthew is encouraging us here. Instead of like pointing at the church and going, hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. No, no. Let's just assume we could all be hypocrites. We could all easily just take the mask and put it on and go, how's everything, Pastor? It's going great. And know that it's not. You see, Matthew would say, instead of judging each other for being hypocritical, encourage one another because you don't really know where someone is at in that journey. Encourage each other to be true to Christ and to hold to their faith, even though it seems like the bridegroom is a long time coming. The formula looks like this. A confession of faith minus a life of discipleship equals a counterfeit faith. You can tell me you, you love Jesus all you want. You can tell me you, you prayed a prayer 50 times when you were growing up to receive Jesus into your heart. But if you have not embraced a life of discipleship that says, Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow what you actually say, then you're in danger of living out a counterfeit faith. 
And here's the thing about that. You know, um, we talk about this sometimes with um, when it comes to our, our kids. We all want to protect our kids from harmful influences, right? I like the illustration of uh, there's a difference between um, isolating and I want to say immunizing. <laughs> uh, but the bottom line is that we, we don't want to isolate people from the world, because we're just, we're just the world we live in. But we need, oh, we need to insulate them. We need to insulate them. And when we, when we make a confession of faith without a life of discipleship, it's easy to go, oh, I'll just stay away from all that stuff. But it doesn't work, does it? It's not practically possible. What we need to start thinking of is, how do I insulate myself? So that the outward, dangerous things that could set me back in the culture that I have an inward strength to withstand that stuff rather than just leaving it all together. Now, sometimes you need to do that, right? How many of you know, sometimes you just got to avoid those people. You just got to avoid those friends. You just got to break up with that person because they're not good for you. And you get it? But there also is this necessity to say, how do I live a life of faith where I am following Jesus and that's building up my soul so that when the pressures of the culture hit, when the social media tries to shape me in its image, when it tries to send me lies, I won't believe them because I've insulated myself by the truth of the word of God and my relationship with Jesus. All right, let's move forward. The second point in terms of being ready. So the first point is, let's just, like, let's just embrace the fact that all of us have the tendency to settle for a hypocritical life. The second thing is we need to embrace tension. Because Jesus here is talking about the fact that the kingdom of God is coming. But guess what? When he started his ministry, he was saying the kingdom of God is already here. So what is it, Jesus? Is it here or is it coming? And he would say, both. And there's a tension in that. The kingdom of God is already here right now. And the way you see it is because people are putting their faith in Jesus. God is doing miracles all around the world. The Christian faith is spreading. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We see evidence that the kingdom is here right now. But then again, we look and go, well, why all this evil? Why all this injustice? It's because the kingdom hasn't yet come in fullness. It's already and not yet. And there is a tension. Now listen, tension is good. Some tension is good. If you got too much stress in your life, that's not good, okay? But listen, if you wanted to make beautiful music on this guitar, what makes beautiful music from this guitar is not only the musician, but the musician has to have the right tension on the strings because to have, to have the right tension means they'll be in tune and they can play beautiful music. Does that make sense? Tension is important and it's, it's beneficial and it creates something beautiful. How many of you know that if you, um, all the beautiful, um, popular stories and movies that we love, the reason we love them is because of the tension, the conflict that is in them. A good story has conflict and has tension. So be true to the tension that faith in Jesus requires. Because God's kingdom is already here and it is also coming. 
And then lastly, well, let me, let me just say it this way. I'm going I'm to read something here I promised I'd give you. Our faith in Jesus is going to require that we sometimes live in this tension of, God, I know the answer's coming, but it's not here yet. Remember we prayed today? And often what you need to do in the meantime is make a deeper commitment that you're going to serve God regardless of how you feel. And you're going to serve God regardless. Like you're going to serve God because it's right. You're going to follow Jesus because it's the right thing to do. You're going to live out your convictions because it's right, not because it's popular. Folks, they're telling us that we are in the most divided time in our nation politically. Really? This, is, this doesn't look like it's going to get any better in the years to come. But it's okay. You know, we are God's people in the midst of a culture that God, Jesus has said, you are the light of the world. And the way we shine is not being divisive amongst us, is by not being divisive amongst us, but by holding to the principles of his truth and serving and worshiping him and encouraging one another and saying, even if this whole thing falls apart, we know the kingdom of God is already here and it is coming. We're going to hold in, we're going to be faithful in the tension. All right, so I promised you I'd read part of Meg's, Meg's vows. <laughs> She's like, oh no, what is going on here? By the way, listen, um, the, you'll see why. Um, I've, I've, as a pastor, heard vows recited and read. I mean, I've heard a lot of them. But, but this time, for some reason, she said something that really caught my attention. So let me, let me read you just a part of it, okay? So this, you got to picture her and Arjo. Arjo's standing there in front of the donut table. <laughs> That's right, it's a donut. It was in a brewery, right? So it's big, like, tubs of beer all over, right? Nice and clean. And Meg is standing there in her beautiful dress, and she's got her piece of paper. She starts reading, and we're like, yeah, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then she, she reads these lines. She says, Arjo, I don't want to marry you to wake up to you every day or be with you forever. Now, she didn't read it in that tone, okay? <laughs> because the tone makes a difference, doesn't it? So, like, if you were to just stop right there, you'd be like, wait up, I don't, I don't think you're going down the right direction, Meg, okay? <laughs> She's like, I don't want to marry you to wake up to you every day or to be with you forever. Well, watch. She goes, I want to marry you because marriage is hard. Raising kids is hard. Debt and bills and jobs and life in general is hard. Now you understand what she meant by that first sentence. She wasn't saying, I don't want to be with you, Fred. She was saying, I reject the fact that I'm getting married to you based on pure romance alone. The forever, the waking up next to you, let you looking so beautiful every morning. <laughs> I reject that illusion. Marriage, life together, 
faithfulness in the times of difficulty is freaking hard. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a bit, but you know, I think that's what you're getting at, right, sis? Okay, here we go. So she goes, and you're the person I want to go through bad times with. Life is never going to magically be butterflies and rainbows just because you marry your soulmate. You listening, young people? She goes, I want to marry you and love you every day through every bump in the road. I want to marry you to be your rock through every curveball and to look at you when everything else is falling apart. I don't want to marry you because it's cute. <laughs> she didn't say because you're cute, right? <laughs> she said because it's cute. I don't want to marry you because it's cute and exciting. I want to marry you because it's real and it's hard work. And at this time, when I was listening to that, I'm going, who is this gal? <laughs> By the way, she's in the armed forces. Go Navy. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I get it now. She's Navy. <laughs> she goes, and a lifetime of ups and downs with you is worth every second of it. <laughs> oh. Now, okay. Yeah, Th those are just words, right? Great words to start off their union together. Because they're going to be tested, aren't they? This is just like the life of faith in Jesus. Some of you came to Jesus because of a promise that if you have him, there's more joy, more happiness, more riches, more prosperity, more blessing. What if you flipped that? And said, I don't want to come to you, Jesus, because it's cute and exciting and because everybody's saying there's blessing. I love you so much that I want to go through the hard times with you. I want to be faithful to you even when everything around me is falling apart. That's the kind of commitment Jesus is looking for from us. And so... We have a decision to make. Because Jesus says, the way you get prepared for my coming is that you take advantage of practicing the power of today. Don't put off till tomorrow what you need to do today. The foolish virgins were sleeping, drowsy, playing video games when they should have been buying oil for their lamps. What is it, and I'm talking to a room full of potential hypocrites, including myself, what is it that you've been putting off in your life with Jesus that you need to get back on the ball today, that you need to start doing again today? Who is it that you need to reconcile with and make it right with? Don't put it off till tomorrow. Who is it that you need to say thank you for the influence you've had in my life? And instead of saying, oh, they'll be there tomorrow. Folks, we know from Kobe Bryant's death, we don't have a lease on life, my friends. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. 
All you've got is the opportunity and the power of today. This is why the apostle says, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. When is the right time to get it right with Jesus? It's right now. When is it the right time to start, you know, really thinking about how I can be a better father, better husband, better mother, better wife, and start taking action on that? The time is right now. Don't get overwhelmed by that. God understands. We can't do everything in a day. It's the attitude. It's the mentality. Lord, I'm not going to put this off until tomorrow. What if tomorrow never comes? What if the bridegroom shows up? Will you be ready? Here's the sobering part of the parable. When the door is shut, the door is shut. There are no second chances when Jesus comes again. You don't get to have this opportunity to choose for Christ in eternity. It's right here that you have to make that choice. So this morning... I want to read you as we prepare for communion. How you live today matters. <laughs> Does that look like your inbox? <laughs> Don't be like that. As we prepare for communion, I want to ask the communion service to come up. There's a passage of scripture that, that says this. It says, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Covenant, marriage, covenant, right? That's that covenant speech. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup. What do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he shows up as the soon coming king. And so this meal is a reminder, an encouragement, and an opportunity for all of us to get right with God. Doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus, it's an opportunity to search our hearts and say, Lord, where is it in my life that I am actually settling for a counterfeit faith? Where am I talking the talk but not walking the walk? And if you don't know where, ask your wife. Ask your husband. Ask those closest to you. They will tell you. And then go, God, by your grace and mercy, I want to follow you in this area. Stand to your feet with me and let's pray. And I want us all to repeat this prayer because as a pastor today, as your pastor, you know, I feel like I am responsible in some way to ensure that all of you have had the chance to really sincerely, truly open your life to trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord. I'm not going to make you pray these words. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. If you want to, you can. If you I'm sorry, if you don't want to, you don't have to. If you really want to rededicate or even receive Jesus for the first time as Savior and Lord, confess Him as Lord of your life. And choose Him regardless of how you feel because you know 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. You believe in him and something of faith has been sparked in your heart today. Then you can pray this prayer and you provide the heart for it, okay? But I want us to, I would invite everyone to pray with me. Let's pray.